Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This is a very special episode of our podcast where we're going to be talking with some experts all about the B in LGBT. We're super excited for this program. It's part of our Pride Power Lunch series. Uh, People who identify as bi experience often multiple layers of intersecting marginalization, and we hope to explore some of these issues, but just want to make an acknowledgement at the outset and throughout the program that Black Lives Matter and that Black Trans Lives Matter. We are absolutely horrified by the actions that led to the death of George Floyd, who is only the latest in a far too long chain of people of color who have lost their lives to incidents of police brutality. That must end. Legal is an LGBT organization made up of LGBTQ lawyers of all races, genders, ethnicities, and sexual orientations. We understand that our work must be intersectional if we hope to achieve our mission of promoting justice in and through the legal system. We are personally and professionally committed to combating racial violence and advancing racial justice through activism, public policy, and the courts of law. We are proud to join over 300 LGBTQ organizations all across the nation, all resolving to focus on issues of police violence, systemic racism, and racial justice. As lawyers, we have unique skills and the privileges to impact change, and we must use them. Our lawyer members get that. Our volunteer lawyers helped us serve over 2,000 people this past year. The vast majority of those individuals who visit the LGBT Bar of New York's legal clinics are low-income New Yorkers and people of color, with 56% earning less than $30,000 per year and 19% reporting no income at all. I would like to highlight just one of many bills that Legal is pushing right now to pass, uh, which was the repeal of the Loitering for the Purposes of Prostitution statute. This is commonly known as the Walking While Trans Ban. Under this archaic statute, law enforcement often targets individuals for behavior such as wearing tight-fitting clothes, waving at a passing car, or smoking outside. Almost all of these arrests under this statute happen in low-income neighborhoods, and over 90% of people arrested were people of color. This is just one of the pieces of reform that we're hoping people will ask their New York state legislators to include in the police accountability bill that they're getting ready to discuss and pass in Albany. As we begin Pride Month, we honor the brave LGBTQ NYC activists like Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and countless other queer people of color whose courage often goes unrecognized. With our drive for justice only fueled by our horror and our outrage, we recommit to centering our work in a way that promotes justice and equality for members of the people of color community. Thank you. You are legal, and together we will once again say Black Lives Matter. So with us today on our bisexuality discussion are three expert panelists. First is Sarah Filcher. Sarah brings a wealth of experience both personally and professionally to fighting for LGBTQ plus people of all ages, especially youth in crisis. 
Sarah is currently serving as vice president of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York, is a staff attorney with the LGBTQ Unit of Legal Services of Hudson Valley. And then we have Nancy Marcus. Nancy is a former Lambda Legal colleague of mine, a lawyer, a constitutional law professor, and now an attorney at Waters, Krauss, and Paul in Southern California. Nancy is the co-founder of Bylaw, a national organization of by lawyers, law students, and our allies. Uh, she's uh, by.org's Legally By columnist. Um, and is the author of many publications, including Bridging by Erasure and LGBT Rights Discourse and Litigation, and a half dozen other influential law review articles on LGBT rights, racial justice, and police reform. Finally, we have William Bill Crosby, who is Vice President of the Associate General, sorry, Vice President, Associate General, and Managing Attorney at Interpublic Group. That's a lot of titles, Bill a New York-based advertising and marketing company with over 50,000 employees worldwide. He has served as an arbitrator in nearly 200 matters. He frequently speaks on issues focused on increasing the numbers of LGBTQ-identified arbitrators and by diversity in the law. He is an active member of the LGBT Bar Association of New York, Legal. What a surprise. He's uh, served on the board for several years and is a member of our Judiciary Committee, which interviews and evaluates judicial candidates in New York. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Nancy, I was wondering if you might be able to kick us off. I know these are difficult and challenging times. I wonder, uh, how are you doing? I'm despondent about what's happening. In, in our country. Um, and six years ago, I was a law professor writing about LGBT issues in my scholarship. That was really my focus. And I just threw it all aside after Tamir Rice was killed. Um, he was killed really close to my house in Cleveland. Nothing really mattered to me except, um, you know, trying to stop what police were doing across the country. And for two years, that's what I wrote about. And that's kind of where I am now. I just want to throw everything else aside and just, you know, again, again revisit. Um, you know, the scholarship I did five years ago, pleading with, with police forces to engage in meaningful community-based police reform and put aside this militarized, you know, racially, you know, homicidal. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's hard. It's hard to move away from that right now. But I do want to, you know, quickly give my uh, just like six-minute version of what's usually kind of an hour presentation on issues about um, by inclusion um, and erasure and why that's important. And the thing is, it is intersectional, as I'm going to, you know, illustrate in a couple of places. Um, you know, it, it really does, everything does kind of come back to, uh, you know, uh, oppression being linked. And um, within the bi community, people of color are... Um, are affected in, in disproportionate ways, even by bi erasure. Um, so that there is some, you know, a lot of intersectionality that I, I want to acknowledge, um, and hopefully we'll do a little bit of justice in doing so in my presentation. Um, so the issue of bi erasure in litigation has been a focus of my work over the years. Um, I am a former Lambda Legal lawyer, but even before then, um, you know, I had done a lot of work um, trying to get by people included in LGBT rights discourse, because we have been systemically and strategically deliberately excluded from a lot of the litigation, um, the impact litigation, legislation as well. Um, to this day, I'm still, I, I've officially retired as an activist, but I can't seem to stay retired because every time I see something, I pop back up and become that squeaky wheel again. Um, 
I've been really um, persistent in trying to lobby both LGBT rights groups and legislators um, and uh, members of Congress to stop calling the bills gay and trans panic bills, for example. Um, if you look at the body of the legislation that's being proposed, it talks about um, eliminating the, the panic defense when people are killed because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. The text of the bill doesn't say for trans and gay people only, so why should the title of the bills? I think it's a simple ask to just get the titles to match the text and be more inclusive and not leave out bi people. The phrase gay and trans leaves out bi people. Uh, it boggles me that this is such a complicated thing to ask for, but the pushback I get is consistently, well, that's the way it's always been. It's too hard to change things. <laughs> it's just pulling out my hair. Okay, so that's legislation. But in the litigation context, um, it, it's really disturbing because it really does have an impact on people's lives. So, for example, in the context um, of the, the upcoming Supreme Court cases um, that are being decided, um, about whether or not religion can be used as a weapon to deny people, um, you know, uh, rights based on, um, you know, their sexual orientation, their gender identity. Once again, I'm starting to see stories that are reporting this as an issue that only affects gay and trans people. I'm reaching out, I'm pushing back, you know, I'm trying to preemptively get the coverage of this issue to be bi-inclusive and still meeting a lot of resistance, even in 2020. It just seems to be a never ending battle. Um, but that battle to try to get bi people included really kind of came to a head during the marriage litigation. Um, and there's some, some really painful examples of how bi's have deliberately been excluded from, from the litigation. And this happened before I was a Lambda Legal lawyer. So <laughs> maybe if I were at Lambda Legal, I, I could have gotten uh, more by inclusion. I, I did actually succeed, I think, in getting more by inclusion in some of the briefing language while I was at Lambda Legal, not just with Lambda Legal, but with other organizations as well, to stop using exclusive phrases like gay and lesbian and gay and trans that, um, you know, blatantly omit bisexuals. Um, so I do think the language is becoming more inclusive. I do see some progress. But um, in marriage litigation, for example, um, in the briefs to the courts, um, the you know, bisexuals weren't just excluded, but even in the questioning, for example, of Sandy Steyer, who was one of the plaintiffs um, in, in the Prop 8 Kate case, um, Ted Olson, you know, she used to be married to a man, and she was one of the primary plaintiffs in the case, and Ted Olson felt the need to explain that away. So here he is, he's her lawyer, and he basically almost turns her into a hostile witness on the stand, and he starts grilling her. How convinced are you that you're gay? You've lived with a husband. You said you loved him. Some people might say, well, it's this, and then it's that, and then it could be this again. Answer that. And in response, she felt compelled to say, well, I never really loved the men that were in my life before. You know, I really am a lesbian. And it just breaks my heart that she was put in that position. You know, and she absolutely has, you know, the right, and I honor her identity as a lesbian. That's not the point. The point is, why should she have been made to defend her sexual orientation as if you know, if she were bisexual, she wouldn't be entitled to equal marriage. Um, but bisexuality has kind of been viewed as, as a liability over the years. And it started with Romer versus Evans, which of course is a wonderful decision for LGBT rights as, you know, in general. It was the first really big LGBT rights victory at the Supreme Court level. But even though the Colorado amendment that was being challenged in that case explicitly said there shall be no civil rights protections for lesbians, gays, or bisexuals, the actual amendment language included bisexuals, the lawyers in the case, our own lawyers said, okay, courts, for the purposes of this case, 
the only people affected by this are lesbians and gays. And that's gonna be the class of people we're talking about today. And so the court followed their lead. And instead of actually addressing who all was affected by the very text of the amendment, the court started just blanket using the phrase lesbian and gay, handling you know, bisexuals. That's how it started. Before then, they were actually, you know, in the St. Patrick's Day case, the court actually named bisexuals, but the abai erasure came from our own lawyers. So that's a battle I've been fighting. Um, I'm asked very frequently, well, why does it matter? Particularly today, why does it matter? It does seem kind of trivial. But here's some examples of why it matters. Um, two of the biggest examples are asylum and family law. In asylum cases, when asylum adjudicators and judges don't understand bisexuality, people's lives get put at risk. So you have bisexual asylees trying to get to this country to escape from persecution in their country for their sexual orientation. And in the UK, for example, the asylum board didn't believe this guy was gay enough for asylum. He's like, well, I'm bisexual. Well, then, you know, you don't get asylum. So to prove to them that he was actually facing the risk of persecution for sexual orientation. He had to produce images of himself in the sexual act with his partner. And that's what it took to convince the asylum board that he really was somebody who wasn't heterosexual and needed asylum. Um, people's lives are at risk. Um, you know, that's the life and death matter. Uh, in, in custody cases, way too frequently, bisexuality is equated with instability. Um, courts who don't understand bisexuality will say, well, you know, you were in a, heterosexual marriage, now you're in a lesbian relationship, ah, kids more stability than that, and they'll yank the kids away. That really does happen, and it happens way too often. So those are examples of why it matters. When you don't have an understanding and acceptance of bisexuality as a legitimate sexual orientation, people's lives really are at risk. Um, disparities faced by bisexuals have been well documented by the, by, by the Williams Institute and elsewhere. Um, and the more stigma and the more erasure, the more these disparities will continue in our mental health and our uh, substance abuse and suicide rates. Um, it, it, and, and it also diminishes the effectiveness of the LGBT rights message as a whole. Here we are fighting for equal respect for people to not to be treated like second class citizens. And when gays then treat bisexuals that way, kind of undermines the message. Um, so I would argue that it actually harms the movement as a whole and, and hurts the integrity and cohesiveness of our overall message. And I want to circle back to intersectionality. Not only are bisexuals facing all kinds of disparities as far as the, you know, health and, and safety type uh, issues that we, we are confronted with, um, we also statistically um, are very diverse. Um, there are more people of color in the bi community than um, in the lesbian gay community. And when you hurt bisexuals, you hurt people of color. And uh, bisexual people of color are hurt more than white people of color. An example of this is the NCLR softball case, which is NCLR doesn't love this case because they were basically forced to go against the rest of the gay community. But I love this case because this is a case where bisexuals were discriminated against by the gay community and NCLR stood up for us. And they litigated. They were forced into litigation because the softball league wouldn't settle. Um, but the softball league basically was kicking out by players, um, even though they had a charter saying, you know, we, we will not discriminate based on sexual orientation. They were kicking yeah. out gay, or interrogating gay soft, or by softball players for not being gay enough. But you know who was selectively pulled out was the people of color. The white by softball players weren't interrogated. It was only the black by softball players. So. Um, you know, when you put discriminate against bi people, you discriminate against people of color just as a matter of statistical reality, but also 
uh, people of color are facing um, even more discrimination than, than, than other bi people. And um, the harms are real. I, um, there's so much more to say, but I don't want to run into other people's time. Um, I do, it is my hope overall that bisexual people can be bridges. Um, I maybe have more anger in my voice than usual right now because I'm just kind of upset about the state of the world, but, but bi people can be bridges. And I, and I think that that's an important role that we can play. Um, and uh, especially in this time of, of, you know, really painful divisions in our society and, you know, walls literally and figuratively being built. Um, I want to keep trying to be a bridge between, um, you know, gay, the straight community, gay people who get it, gay people who don't get it, um, and um, doing everything I can um, to help, you know, people, sorry, people of color in our movement and um, throughout society. I, I think I have to stop now, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nancy. Sarah? Are you, <laughs> Are you next? I'll take it over. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. um, well, thank, thank you, Eric. Um, and it's really good to see all of you here remotely. I just see many of your boxes. Um, I know these are these are really crazy times. Um, you know, first we had COVID. Uh, now we have you know this, these issues of uh, police brutality um, and racism, and um, you know it's, it's a very difficult time for for everybody. Um, you know the, the the interesting thing about talking about bisexuality, and, and let me before I say happy pride, let's let's have a have a good part of that. Um, but you know one of the interesting things about bisexuality is that it it does overlap. You know as Nancy was saying, in terms of the issues um, that we're seeing now, um, you know where people are protesting in, in connection with you know the the incidents in, in Minneapolis, um, because bisexuals are also marginalized. So I mean there's there's a lot of of overlap. Um, you know, we're talking about a group of people, you know, a very varied group of people um, subject to, you know, perceptions and slights. Um, and, and there are real issues that, you know, systemic issues that we deal with in uh, the bi community, not just people of color, but across the, you know, the, the spectrum of, of, uh, of, of people who identify as bi and pan, um, non-monosexual. Um, so, you know, I mean, the... Nancy talked about some of the, the stats and some of them are horrifying. 25% uh, of um, uh, respondents in one survey of bisexuals, I think in Australia reported having attempted suicide, um, you know, rates of depression, access to healthcare, um, sleeping problems. H HRC did a survey of youth and found 90% of, of bi-identified youth have difficulty sleeping um, and lack of support Ultimately, it all comes down to uh, the, the fundamental lack of support, uh, a lack of visibility. And, and the lack of visibility is because people are afraid. Many people are afraid to put themselves out there um, as bisexual because they, the reaction that they've received um, when they've done that has, has not been a positive one. And it's kind of forced them back. And they don't see that there's a benefit to coming out. Um, you look at the gay community gay and lesbian where there, there's such a celebration of coming out. Um, and, and that's not really the case in the bisexual community. Um, and it's interesting that one of the, uh, the slogans um, for um, the ad advocacy of, of LGBT rights, it gets better. Um, you know, there's a lot of it gets better, it gets better. 
it was actually a study about bisexuals that found that it does not get better. And in fact, compared to uh, straights, gays and lesbians, trans were not included in that survey, but um, compared to straights, gays and lesbians, um, the, the perception of, of improvement in life was markedly absent for bisexuals as they advanced from youth into middle age. Um, so th these are really scary issues. Um, and you know, we need to, to target at, at every level we can. Whenever I'm on a panel with, with people uh, who are advocates, um, who are dealing with impact litigation and addressing the legal aspects of this, I always feel a little inadequate because I don't do that. I'm just a, a humble advertising lawyer. Um, my practice doesn't really involve any um, LGBT um, advocacy at all. Um, but so there's a part of me that feels sort of a little reluctant to, to be here um, with, with Sarah and Nancy. But then I remind myself that, you know, there, there are so many of us that are doing what we can do um, in our own spheres. And that's important, the idea of visibility. So you don't have to be heavy hitters um, like, like Nancy and Sarah to, to still have an impact. And I think, you know, in, in terms of telling my story, and I hope this becomes more of a conversation. So I'm not going to take a lot of time, but I just want to, you know, sort of start it off. Um, it, that for, for me personally, that it, the issue, the struggle has been between the sense that my sexuality is my private business, it's my personal issue, and then seeing the impact, though, on the bisexual community and realizing that I didn't really have the luxury of being able to treat this as a private matter, uh, because th there was a real need for me to be there, um, to, to be visible, um, to be accessible to people. And, you know, I, I accepted that. I mean, it's, uh, I, I think that's a really important thing to do. Um, and, you know, so it, it's, it's important for as many of us to be out there for others, because that's one path to erasing this, this bi erasure and to creating a supportive environment for people who identify as bi. Um, my story in terms of, of coming out as bi, I, I'm a latecomer to all this. I, I came out in my 30s. Um, I was a, a married man. I was married to a woman at that time. That was the only, you could only be married to a woman. It was, there was no same-sex marriage in New York or most places as far as I could tell. Um, and so, you know, at, at that point, I just realized that there, that wasn't the end of my story. And there were, there were issues that I just had never really dealt with. And, and I, I got to a place where I identified with being bisexual. Um, and I also decided, you know, somewhat unusually, I guess, um, you know, from certainly uh, uh, the people that I've, I've known along the way, but that I, I was happy in my relationship and I, I wanted to stay with my wife. Um, I wasn't looking to, you know, I, I loved her very much and I came out to her and, and um, fortunately for me, she, she was not quite understanding of bisexuality, bisexuality at the time, but she certainly was willing to, to look into it, to research, to understand, to learn, to talk as, as, you know, to as many people as she could to really get a good perspective. And, you know, that I, I, I feel very grateful to that. Um, so I, I had a very strong um, supportive environment at home uh, when I came out. It's interesting though, when, when I came out um, to my friends and family, um, straight people generally tended not to, you know, they didn't really understand it, didn't really sort of um, like with that, if that's what makes you happy, that's what makes you happy. Um, neither endorsement nor uh, scorn. But I found a tremendous pushback in, in the gay and lesbian community, uh, particularly among gay men, um, which, you know, I, there, there are many reasons for that. And I think the largest reason, um, and, and I think things are changing with, with younger people, but I think at the time when I came out, um, so many gay men had had the experience of knowing people or having personally gone through a period where they, they looked at bisexuality as sort of this temporary station um, where they could, you know, before they came out and felt fully comfortable 
with uh, coming out as, as gay and they projected that um, to, to anybody who was expressing that, um, which is unfair. Um, it's certainly demoralizing when you're coming out to people that you think that, that are, uh, should be your support base and they turn out not to be your support base. Um, but many of those people at the time that had that reaction are still very close friends of mine and we've been able to talk about that. Um, and, and, you know, we, we sort of acknowledge that process. Um, and I think that, you know, by continuing to educate, taking every opportunity to, to talk to your friends, family, as many people as you can about bisexuality, you do cover some ground um, and, and make this something that is beyond just their, their personal experiences and historical anecdotes. Um, I started out looking in uh, the bi community. I, I, I wanted a bi community. I wanted to find a bi community. So I was, I was initially active primarily in bi organizations, not larger LGBT organizations, because uh, I just felt I needed to be with people who really understood me, um, where, where there was just a, a common understanding of, you know, kind of experience. Um, in that experience, and I met amazing people, and that, that was a truly rewarding experience of, of coming out and having, and I was fortunate to be in New York City, which is, uh, you know, there's not a lot of places where there's an active bi community where you can tap in and, you know, find groups and, and have large attendances at those groups. But I was fortunate enough that, that I was in New York, um, fortunate enough to meet the people I did. I also saw firsthand the tremendous burdens um, that, that people were, were dealing with in the group. Uh, everything from mental health issues, homelessness, rejection by family, uh, a complete fear of uh, uh, being able to start relationships, um, the fear of rejection, that I, I can't come out. So many people weren't able to come out. Um, and this was across ages, across ethnicities, genders. And it was really shocking to see that. And, and the, common, the common issue was just that there were, there, there were no people that, that people felt they could talk to aside from the group members. Uh, new members would come to the group and would break out in tears uh, talking about how they had never been in an experience where they had been around by people. They didn't think something like that could exist. Um, and it was, you know, just really amazing to see that um, and, and to feel that I was part of that and that those of us that were engaged in that were part of, of a process of making people feel supported. Um, and so, you know, that's, I've taken that with me as I ventured into larger LGBT organizations um, and I didn't have the protection of everyone understanding the, the common lingo, um, you know, there are definitely challenges. And I think all of us who identify as buyer or pan can, can relate to going to uh, organizations, uh, events, and sort of feeling like this constant process of coming out, um, constant need to educate people on, you know, why are you here? You're, you're married to who? What, what's, what's going on here? Um, and, and using that. And, and initially I was not, uh, a fan of that. Um, you know, I saw that as a tremendous burden to, you know, have to do that. Um, over time, I realized that there was a lot of benefit to that. Um, and that many of the people who were coming up and asking questions were asking questions that they literally had never met somebody who was, was openly bi. Uh, and they had many, many questions that they, you know, wanted to answer, have answered. Um, and I could do that. And I could have that interaction end with that person being more enlightened about bisexuality. Um, and it, it was worth it to do that. So um, that got me more involved in the LGBT organizations. The last um, area for me uh, was work because I, I really did feel the workplace was, was a place where um, there was no need for me to, uh, to get into sexuality. Um, I 
I came to work. My life was my life and my work was my work. And the, the two really didn't need to meet. I didn't feel like I was uh, not bringing myself to my office uh, and I felt satisfied. But I also realized that in the workplace that you know, the, 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 it was important to be visible. Um, I had been involved in our, um, our LGBT affinity group. Um, you know, people were making snide remarks about bisexuals. And I had to step up and say, look, you know, here, here's, here's why that's wrong. And you know, here's what you need to know. And the response was always positive. Um, that people really did feel that, you know, oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that I was being insensitive. Um, so there's tremendous opportunity for us to, to create some positive movement when we just speak up um, and, you know, make our presence clear. Um, and Nancy mentioned by, by law, the bylaw caucus at, at Lavender Law um, is, is an amazing thing because having been out as bi for, um, you know, several years now, um, it's still amazing for us to all be in a room and you have like 40 or 50 bi-identified lawyers. Um, and, and some of them had the same reaction in that situation that people in my original bi organization had. Literally breaking down into tears saying they had never met bi lawyers. They had never been in a place where they, they, they had been with so many people and they didn't even think that that was possible. And it really gave them assurance in their ability to, to be bi, to practice as bi lawyers and to know that there were people out there who would support them. So I know for, I don't wanna take up too much time, much more time, but um, I, I feel that's really, that's one of the most important things that I can do. Um, I'll leave the, the high impact litigation to Nancy, um, but certainly I will be there um, offering support and advice and mentorship to anybody who I can. And, you know, I start by just opening my mouth, raising my hand and showing that I'm there. I'll turn it over to Sarah. Well, thank you, Bill, for sharing your personal experiences with us today. And thank you, Nancy, for sharing your professional advocacy with us. I'm hoping to kind of pull together some of the themes that you both touched on in, in my closing remarks before we turn it over for discussion this afternoon. I'm going to give two really quick disclaimers. Number one, that my comments may or may not represent my employer, so please don't interpret them that way. And number two, I'm going to say pan, I'm going to say bi as opposed to pan throughout our discussion. I typically use the terms interchangeably and define bi as attraction to only two genders, mine and everyone else's. And no, I didn't coin that phrase, and I cannot remember who did. So with that said, let's jump right in. When we initially planned this event. I had envisioned a much more lighthearted lunch hour that would examine how to navigate bisexuality both personally and professionally. And now the anecdotes from my career search struggles seem far more trivial than they did even a week ago. Though it's essential to be examining all Pride Month events from an intersectional standpoint, this discussion in and of itself cannot serve as a replacement for addressing the ongoing crisis of violence against our black and brown community members. I hope that this Zoom meeting this afternoon can offer an hour of respite where bisexuals are at the forefront of a necessary and honest conversation. Both Nancy and Bill touched on some of the statistics that I wanted to share with you from the UCLA School of Law Williams Institute. If you haven't had a chance to check out those studies, I'm sure we can find a way to send that as a link to participants after today's event. The only one I really wanna take a moment to highlight is that nearly one in three bisexual cisgender women are living in poverty. 
And even though we're lawyers, we can't be removed from talking about poverty issues, whether we represent people through non the nonprofit sector, legal aid type sectors or not. This is such a high staggering number within our community that this has to be addressed in larger conversations. And again, healthcare, mental health issues, that's already been touched on and I wanna make sure that I'm not duplicative in my remarks. So I just only wanted to take the moment to think about these statistics because I suspect these disparate uh, measures on economic and housing insecurities in our community keep bisexual people from coming out in the workplace in greater numbers. It's though we should be grateful for the jobs we have considering the poverty rates that are within the communities. And I know that finding a job is difficult. So it's like you feel this pressure that you can't really show up and show out at work in the way you would like because you feel so grateful to even have a job. Even when I was looking for jobs in New York City among some of the most prestigious nonprofits in the city, their ad postings would include language that encouraged lesbian, gay, and transgender persons to apply. We see exactly what you're saying when you use that language in your job posts. And I fear that the economic aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic will only serve to keep the practice of quote unquote, keeping two resumes alive and well. I've been involved with Legal for just shy of five years now, attending dozens of events, spending hundreds of hours volunteering, and by far the overwhelming majority of law students and lawyers who have pulled me aside for a quick chat at our events to say that they didn't feel comfortable coming out at work were members of the bi community. And that's always really stuck with me as I've moved forward in our efforts. And I fear that this apprehension, like we, some of our panelists talked about earlier, this apprehension is only compounded by the number of times that you're required to come out. People sometimes joke that bisexuals are the vegans of the queer community because they're always talking about it. You make us. <laughs> You're the ones who are making the assumption about what our sexual orientation is based on the photograph that's currently sitting on our desk. Now more than ever, bar associations need to be safe havens for the entire community. People often ask me, why am I so involved with Legal? Earlier in my career, I did not feel welcome at other LGBTQ bar associations. I did not live in a metropolitan area. I did not identify as gay or lesbian. I saw an organization name that chose not to include my identity. I heard biphobic remarks at events or outright absence of mentions of bisexual people as Nancy was talking about earlier, the, the phrase gay and transgender. And I wanted to change that. When I'm not volunteering for legal, I'm often assigned sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination cases in the areas of housing, employment and public accommodation. And this is where I have to take the sidebar to truly gush about how much I love my job and how lucky I feel every day to be able to represent the community on the day-to-day -day cases that don't necessarily get all the splashy attention that the impact litigation does. Though I haven't been at my position too terribly long, I have yet to have a bisexual complainant in a discrimination case. And we know that this isn't because everything is sunshine and roses. Bisexuals are still treated as the HR nightmare of the queer community, perceived as less professional, less stable, less serious, and even hypersexual, particularly for those of us who are non-monogamous. The ongoing myth of the equal opportunity harasser further reinforces a culture of silence and speaking about our personal lives, even if it's as innocuous of a question as responding to how was our weekend. This is a continuation of a much larger historical pattern and I recommend a law review article called Employment Discrimination Against Bisexuals in a Pure Study 
It's a 2015 article, but unfortunately, many of these points still ring just as strongly today. And um, we have, you know, as lawyers, we have the data, we have the personal experience, and we have the knowledge of how to apply an intersectional skill set to the work that we do. So we're not, like I said, we're not forgiven or given a pass on not participating in these difficult conversations, and it's time to step up in greater numbers. I am tired of pushing the same boulders up the hill that I struggled under even prior to entering law school. And I'm sure so many of you here today are as well. However, everyone here today, um, excuse me, however, I truly believe that 2020 could be an opportunity to change our eternity of pushing those rocks up the hill. Everyone here today, especially those of us who live our lives under the shade of the broader by umbrella, has carried the unique burdens imposed by belonging to a marginalized community. We can no longer be each other's trauma. The infighting regarding flag designs, who or who is not queer enough, and what is the appropriate one-size-fits-all word for monosexuals, this all has to stop now. And I, I agree with Nancy's point 110% regarding being bridges. We, every day, we are the ultimate code switchers. We walk through multiple worlds. We are more than qualified to build effective coalitions. And we are the only ones who can end this pain. And frankly, with everything going on right now, there is far too much suffering in our country to continue to divide and exclude each other any longer. And with that, I'll turn things over to Eric to moderate our question and answer portion of the lunch hour. Although, can I jump in for a second? Of course. Thanks, Eric. I have to piggyback off of a couple of things. First, I'm, I'm not at my best today, so I left out a couple of really important things. And Bill, I'm so grateful for you to, uh, for mentioning the bylaw caucus, which is really important. Um, anybody who attends the Lavender Law Conference, which is the annual LGBT Bar Association Conference, um, is very strongly encouraged to go to the Bylaw Caucus, which is a gathering, as Bill described, of, of bi and bi-allied people. It is so moving. Every year, as Bill described, people are moved to tears at the gratitude of just being with other people who are like them. Um, and part of the problem is bisexuals are 52% of, of, of the LG, LGB population, um, you know, sexual orientation minorities, but we get less than 1% of the funding um, for our organizations. As a result, most bi people don't have any kind of real community as far as organizational support. Um, I lived in the Midwest and it was vastly different, that experience than living in Los Angeles or being in New, New York. You just don't have the groups because the groups aren't being funded and the groups aren't being promoted. So uh, very difficult, that's a big issue, but please do uh, look into attending the bylaw caucus. Um, we have a bylaw Facebook group um, if you wanna join. There's a bylaw Google groups I can hook you up with. Um, again, officially I've resigned as an activist, but not really. Um, so if people wanna reach out to me, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, another really important piece, and I apologize for leaving this out, but in, in terms of how bisexuals help the LGBT rights movement, it's, it, it's not just that we help, uh, you know, make the messaging more coherent, but we can actually strategically move that messaging forward. So it's more than just saying the B word. Um, we should be acknowledged and worked into the actual strategic arguments. And here's an example. In the marriage cases, um, uh, and, and and again, I kind of wrote about this at the time, and I think a couple of judges got this, I actually got a nice little thank you note from Justice Kagan. <laughs> um, but 
when I was bisexual, when I was bisexual, <laughs> when, when marriage was not legal and I was bisexual living in Indiana, if I had gone to the clerk of courts in my state and said, hi, I'm bisexual, I want to marry this man, is that okay? The clerk would say, well, of course, you're marrying a man, what's the big deal? If I were to go to the same clerk of courts and say, hi, I'm bisexual, I want to marry this woman, is that okay? The clerk would say, well, no, we don't recognize same-sex marriage here in Indiana, you can't marry the woman. But the only thing that would have changed in that scenario is not my sexual orientation. It's only the gender of the person I want to marry. So what I'm saying is that bisexuals help illustrate that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination. And that couldn't be more critical today because that is the very issue in front of the Supreme Court. That is exactly the kind of thing that they're having to decide. So, um, you know, we can help advance those types of arguments. It's not that the, you know, impact litigators are unaware of those arguments because I really am a squeaky wheel <laughs> and I've really pushed these arguments to be made. But they're still shying away from them for various reasons. Um, and I'm unfortunately not an impact litigator anymore. I just do asbestos manufacturers for a living these days. Um, but, you know, I'll keep pushing that. But if other people can, you know, keep, you know, moving that type of argument forward, think about how we really do help promote the argument that we illustrate that it's really a form of, sexual of sex discrimination. Um, there's so many other ways that we can be useful. So please reach out to bisexuals. Don't exclude us, but use us. Um, we want to be used. We want to be included. Um, so just had to throw that in. Thank you so much, Nancy. Folks, we're going to, I want to get in as many questions as we can and, and discussion. So please use the uh, raise hand uh, uh, function. So if you see over there, there's an icon for raising your hand. If you raise your hand, I'll just call on you. We'll unmute folks. I mean, this is a relatively small group, so I think we'll probably be fine if we can't figure out. Just unmute yourself and we should be able to deal with it. Um, but I do want to try to maintain um, uh, some kind of, of who's going to go when. Um, so if you have a question, uh, signal to me and I'll go ahead and get, get you to the panel. If not, just, oh, I see somebody, Sarah, I'm unmuting you. Sorry about that. But anyway, I just, I guess kind of comment slash question about kind of really hitting on the intersectionality. Oh, by the way, my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm actually, uh, I'm a law student at Seton Hall Law School, uh, president of my uh, Lambda organization. And mainly I kind of wanted to hit on what your thoughts on the fact that so much within, even within the bi community, we get that you have to be this way to be, to be bi in the sense that it kind of, because for instance, I know I have several, um, I was very lucky to have several um, bi friends and we all demonstrate our bisexuality differently. And yet sometimes it's like, you have to be this way to be bi kind of thing. I guess, what are your thoughts on that? And how do we kind of work through that and in a way that successful, successfully, you know, addresses and makes our position, you know, advocates for us? I can kind of tie that into a question I'm seeing in the comments too, asking us to offer definitions of bisexuality. I really love Sarah's definition that she threw out there about, you know, two things, it's my gender and other genders. But also I really love, Robin Oaks has a definition that's kind of widely accepted as, you know, 
um, a good definition of bisexuality, which is the ability to be attracted to person of one's gender, um, one's own gender or other genders, um, you know, romantically or sexually, not necessarily in the same way or at the same time, which really leaves it open for it to be all kinds of things. Um, I mean, it really is an individual thing. Um, it, it can be fluid, it can be static, it can be monogamous, it can be polyamorous. There's so many different ways to be bisexual. And there's so many other individual umbrella labels, you know, within that, you know, polysexual, pansexual. Um, I, I think that it's important not to try to do a one size fits all with bisexuality, but to embrace our diversity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that and think that one of the, one of the things that I've most admired about the, the open bisexuals that I've known through various groups in, in my life is the individuality um, and, and the diversity. When we would have our group meetings um, for the group that I was, the, the bi group in New York, we would go out to dinner after our meetings and I would laugh and I would, I would joke with other members. I'm sure that everyone out here is trying to figure out what the common denominator is with this group and they can't figure it out because we are just everything, right? So, I mean, that's something that I celebrate in my bisexuality. Um, and I think we should. There are definitely people who are narrower in their view and who feel like if you don't do it my way, you're not really doing it the right way. And I think we just have to, you know, be clear about that, that that's not helping us. Um, and, you know, that, that's basically sort of oppressing ourselves um, and, and putting ourselves in a, in a narrow box the way others might want to do um, to us. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that is it's one of the, the greatest aspects of my own personal bisexuality and uh, the bisexuality I share with, with members of the bi community. Any other questions? If not, I would ask if, if the panelists have questions for each other. Oh, I see Lisa has one. Go ahead. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, I'm Lisa, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, this is just a collection of thoughts that builds on this theme about, you know, the diversity of bi identity and bi experience and just how we navigate ourselves, but how we navigate in the professional realm. And I just want to thank the panelists, um, every single one, because each of you gave me something that I can go back and kind of subtly but consistently operationalize in my official diversity and inclusion work. So simply, for example, when we do cultural competency terminology training, wh why is it that we start with LGB, like B is, is the last piece? If we're talking about a marginalized majority, why don't I simply start with that definition and then explain what lesbian signifies and gay? Um, and then I think really pushing within LGBTQ plus circles for that recognition and for um, the recognition of the authenticity of bi identity and experience simply through the sharing of our lives. I think Bill touched on that in a way that always resonates with me in terms of we can think to not necessarily include that in professional circles, but there's a consequence when we don't. So if we are in, in other ways privileged and we can share that, I, I think it's important that we do, but in the ways that feel most natural and comfortable to us. So that's just a comment from me and I, I'd welcome further comment from the presenters um, on any of those points. And thanks Eric for putting this together and including us. Thank you, Lisa. Any, anybody from the panel wanna comment? I took the last one. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know. But yeah, I, 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 I would just be repeating myself, but I, I completely agree with that. And I, I, I thank you very much for that, for that comment. Um, it, it's, you know, everything that we can do to make this, make it clear that this is a marginalized group and to bring it out of that, that sense of marginalization um, to greater visibility is what we need to do. Go ahead, Olivia. Hi, everyone. Um, first of all, thank you to everyone who put this together. Uh, this was an amazing lunch. Uh, I'm a law student at Pace uh, Law right now, and I'm looking to do queer activism as my career in some form. Um, so I was just curious if anyone had any tips for when your career is also so connected to your identity, how and when you can create any sort of boundaries. Because uh, I definitely am wary of burnout, and I, I understand that you definitely have to have some sort of a work-life balance, but I feel like my life and my work are so interconnected that it can be difficult to even see where to draw the line in the sand. Yeah, I, I wish I had the time to teach a master class on this issue because I, I very much feel what you're saying. Um, you know, when I go to events now, it's like, am I billing this under the office saying I'm still working and I'm wearing the legal services Hudson Valley, H you know, LGBTQ HIV units hats, or am I going as Sarah Filcher, private citizen, or am I going as vice president legal? And um, I know we just don't have enough time to give a really proper answer to your question. And I'm, honestly, if you put your email address, if you want to message your email address to Eric, I'm happy to follow up with you after the lunch hour. Thanks. I mean, I'm somebody, I keep saying I've retired. <laughs> I, I kind of hit that, that burnout breaking point, and yet I still keep pushing through it. Um, I, I can't do LGBT rights work full time anymore. It's not my job. I'm a you know, toxic torts, complex litigation attorney with very little free time. But there are still issues that pop up and battles that pop up that I will fight, that I will stay engaged in because I can't not. Um, so it really has to be about triage and prioritization and, you know, there, there, there's a way to keep doing it all. But, you know, you have to take care of yourself. So I do, I am getting better about saying no and asserting boundaries and saying can't do it this time. I'm really sorry, but um, you know, they'll come back. They'll, they'll, there will always be opportunities to be involved. Thank you for not saying no today, Nancy. We're so glad. I tried. You wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> one, I know, but one thing that you guys all have in common is that you all have limited time and you're so giving in your volunteerism and I so deeply appreciate it. I want to call on Shalina. Hi, um, thank you all for having us today. I, I did sort of send this to the chat and then I realized the proper way to do this is to do the raise your hand feature. So I apologize for that. Um, for those of us who may have come out fairly recently, um, and we're still sort of looking for resources to navigate that, in addition to the BI caucus, which is a great um, resource then that to look into, what are some other resources that we can look towards? Um, as many of them that I've looked for, seem to be targeted mostly towards um, youth or to um, uh, gay and lesbian um, groups. So for, for coming out as an adult in your 30s, um, what, are, what sorts of resources can, should we look for and, and look to? And can I ask, what, what city are you in? 
I am actually in New York, so I know there's a lot out here, but I just, I feel like it's partly just navigating who do I talk to and where do I go? And I did actually start to find some resources before the pandemic, but, um, but I just think I'm lucky and I, to be in New York and it was actually harder than I would have thought it would have been given where I am. Well, I, I'll start. I mean, I'm sure everybody has their, 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 their views on this, but um, there's, there's several in New York, there's several by groups, by requests is one. Um, there, are, there are variants of that um, that are in New York City and in, in different uh, parts of the city. I think there's one in Westchester, there's one in Long Island. Um, so there, there is a, and, and those tend to be discussion groups, not support groups, because support group implies that there's some element of like, you know, therapeutic, um, and that, that they're really intended to have an opportunity for people to talk um, and, and about whatever. Some of the discussions are facilitated. Some of the discussions are just sort of general. Um, some of them are by 101, like basics or to educate. Um, and the attendees are mostly by, but occasionally uh, straight and, and people who identify as uh, gay or lesbian will come as well. Um, sometimes they have partners who identify as bi and they want more information. So um, I can give you information on, um, on, on the ones that I'm aware of and, and the contacts for those people. Um, there are others that are sort of on a national level. Um, there's a, a bi resource center that's based in Boston, um, which is pretty, uh, pretty uh, out there in terms of you know, its advocacy, uh, very visible and, and high profile. Um, so I'd be happy to share um, if, if uh, I guess through Eric, I can get your contact information or you could leave it in the chat and um, you know, I, I can forward you the information I have. That'd be great. Thank you. In addition to the Bisexual Resource Center, some of the other national bi orgs um, that have pretty visible social media presences, Facebook and um, Twitter and that kind of thing, are uh, Bisexual Organizing Project, BOP, um, which actually has a conference. It's a wonderful conference I recommend going to um, once a year called the Because Conference. Can't tell you what Because stands for, but it's creative and cute. Um, but it's a gathering of bi activists. Um, just kind of grassrootsy, almost a, like a task force kind of feel to it, um, but just really cool people. And it's great to just be there and just be in that energy. Um, so Bisexual Resource Center, um, BRC, uh, BOP, um, PAVES, Bylaw, um, Still Bisexual is a great one. It's hashtag Still Bisexual. Um, and it's, um, I'm, I'm good friends with the executive director of that group and she puts out videos of people telling their stories. Um, and uh, so um, there's so many more paves as a new one. I'm not as familiar with them, but um, they're, they're pretty recent and I understand they're doing some great things. Um, I feel like I'm leaving out some, but those are a few. Binet is kind of in a state of transition right now. So Binet used to be the big hub, but uh, check it out again in about a year and a half or two years and see how it's doing. Uh, right now it's time for the other bi groups to really have a voice. And um, so I think there's some exciting stuff going on in the bi movement as a whole, but yeah, a lot of it is on Facebook and uh, Twitter these days. And then you can connect with people that way and build community if you're not, especially if you're not in a place like New York or Los Angeles. Oh yeah. So in Los Angeles, um, I'm part of a wonderful organization called AMBI or AMBI. It's kind of a pun. I am by like ambidextrous. Um, AMBI, it has chapters also really worldwide. Um, and you can always start a chapter and we can help you start a chapter. Um, it's, it actually does get funding, um, which is rare for bi groups um, through the American Institute of Bisexuality. 
which is another good organization. Um, but AMBI, I think um, that's really worth people checking out who want to help build social communities because it's just a great organization for building those communities, for um, getting events going, um, and it's pretty well organized. So, um, and, and you can also, they're also affiliated, I think, loosely with buy.org. Um, so that's another place that you should check out with a lot of resources. Buy.org has a lot of really good articles and resources and information as well as community. Great, let's get in Teresa and then we'll, we'll close out for folks. Teresa? Okay, thank you, Eric, and thanks everybody on the panel. Um, Bill, you alluded to um, th that you thought maybe younger generations, like things might be a little bit different. And I have a daughter who's 20 and who identifies as bi, and I feel like, like her generation is just so much more open and um, accepting of everybody. It's just really cool to watch. And I'm just wondering what you all think about that. Yeah, I, I, I also have a, a daughter who's 17 who identifies as bi. Um, and so, um, yeah, and, and I hear from her, I hear from my straight son, just in terms of how they interact and, and how people identify in their peer group. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, the, there's the flexibility, the fluidity, um, the, the, I'm, I'm always impressed with the, the courage that people have in terms of just making that, make clear who they are and, and, you know, how they want to live their lives so early. Um, there was one um, study of, of youth, I think the HRC did a study that um, where I think um, close to half of those that identified um, a, a sexual orientation in that survey were identified as either bi or pan. Um, and, and that is something that is, I, I think, in market contrast from, from older um, uh, people. So yeah, I, I, de I definitely think that there, there is an openness to that. There's an acceptance to the idea that there's more than just one way uh, that you can represent them yourself. Um, there, you actually are starting to see images of that in, um, you know, in entertainment, um, you know, by characters and uh, or, or characters who who may not label themselves as bi, but are certainly not limiting themselves to being, uh, you know, gay, straight, or or lesbian. So I think that that's a positive development, and I hope that that's kind of a, a good sign for the future that there will be that openness. But then on the other side, there's still going to be bullying and there's still intolerance. And so we're always going to have to deal with that. But at least in terms of openness um, to, to, to the possibilities of life, um, it's, it's good to see that in, in young people. I had to wait till I was in my 30s to get there and they're doing it at 17 and 20. It's great. Wow. Thank you all so very much for joining us. Thank you to our amazing panelists. Um, you, you know, Nancy, Sarah, Bill, you guys are so involved and we so deeply appreciate you. And I hope in this moment of activism, taking this moment for some self-care, for some community building, um, it certainly meant a lot to, to me. Thank you for welcoming me into this space. And just please remember to everybody here, um, Legal is an organization that's yours. Um, so if you wanna see more bi programming, if you wanna build a stronger bi community, um, first of all, Bill and Sarah are pretty much everything. <laughs> um, they're so involved. And so if you wanna get involved with um, some bi programming, please help uh, me bring that to the fore. Uh, and thank you for your participation today. Um, go out there and do good work. Thank you all. And thank you, Eric. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Black trans lives matter. Black Lives Matter and Black Trans Lives Matter. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah.
and thank you for listening to this very special episode of the Legal LGBT podcast. Join us again next week when it'll be the Legal Law Notes podcast episode, where hopefully we'll be talking about, with Art Leonard, the development at the Supreme Court. But if not, there are a bunch of other important legal issues and developments all throughout the month of May uh, and a little bit into June that we'll be discussing. So thank you for listening. Give us a listen next week.